Welcome to the Relaxed Dog Podcast. The podcast where the dogs are the stars of the show. Welcome to episode 101 of the Relaxed Dog Podcast, sponsored by therelaxeddog.com. Thank you very much for finding this little show. I am your host, Robert Ober, and I hope that you and your dog are well. Our guest this episode is Glenn Cook, and he is going to tell us all about Harley. So make sure after you have finished listening to tell a friend how awesome this story was. Also, another little interesting side note, uh, this episode with Glenn makes it the first husband and wife team that we've had on this show with Glenn's wife, Narelle, telling us all about Ladybug back in episode 87. So don't forget to check that one out as well. Anyway, enough from me. Let's get on with the show. Welcome to the Relaxed Dog Podcast. I am here with Glenn Cook. How are you today? I'm good, thanks, Robert. How are you? I am fantastic. Thank you very much for asking. Now, usually always ask, where in the world are you? But you're just down the road. We are. You're you're on the central coast, aren't you? Oh, I am. Yes. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm in Dural in New South Wales, so we're probably about an hour and twenty from each other. Yep. Nope. Lovely, lovely spot. It is a lovely spot. Yes. And who are we going to talk about today? I was thinking about uh, going back to the start of my career and talking about the dog that launched me into the professional dog training realm, and that was my. It wasn't my first dog. He was my first own dog. So we had family dogs before, but the dog that I'm, I've chosen to talk about in this particular podcast is a dog called Harley. And Harley was a, uh, a German Shepherd cross Rottweiler who was more Rottweiler than he was German Shepherd. And uh, I, I probably should let you ask me some questions about that. Yeah, no, that's all right. No, I think it's going to be a, an excellent choice. This is going to be yeah. a really, really good episode, I think. So I'm going to, as per usual, ask you to take us back in time to just before you and Harley met and tell us about the hows and whys that that happened. Uh, So I was uh, just moving out of home at that point in time and I had my um, girlfriend at the time and a group of people that, well, my best friend who was, uh, you know, school, school, uh, childhood friend, we were working together, we moved together, and there was probably a bunch of us, about four that moved into a communal rental house. And uh, it was all the first time for all of us that we'd moved out of, ho- out of home. And at one stage, I just thought to myself, you know, I've had dogs all throughout my family life. You know, we've had little dogs, big dogs, all sorts of dogs that have sort of been in our life at that point in time. And I really wanted to move out so I could set myself up with my own dog. Mm-hmm. And my my great friend Mark and I were sitting in the lounge room one day and we had the trading post back then because this was before everybody was online. So uh, you yep. remember the most things. Yeah, well, you I remember didn't the have trading the post. 
you know, nobody did the internet and nobody did anything like that. So to find out, um, you know, what you wanted to look at, if you wanted to buy something that was used or whatever, the trading post was the way to go. Uh, but the trading post just didn't focus on uh, on electrical goods or furniture and so forth. There was a pet section in the trading post as well. So there were dogs for sale and cats for sale, et cetera, et cetera. So if you wanted to find a breeder, again, we didn't have social media. We had limitations on how we would actually find people. And that was a great resource for the community to come together. So I had it. We're sitting in the lounge room and... Um, I was just going through a list at that point in time and I saw these this list up and it didn't list him at the time as being a crossbreed. It listed him as being a, a Rottweiler puppy. And uh, I showed it to Mark. We were sitting down, we we're having a beer and we we're sitting on the couch together watching TV and I showed him the ad and he said, oh, yeah, well, you know, you should get it. You should get it. And at the time I was short of the money that they're asking. I think they had, they were asking 500 bucks. And uh, I was a first-year apprentice at the second-year apprentice at that time, I believe, and so was he. We were both working at the same place. We both started at the same time. So I thought, fantastic, yes, I'd love to. Um, I'd love to get this dog. So I said to Mark, well, you know, how about you come in on it with me, and you know, like we sh- we share the dog. Sound like a great idea at the time. <laughs> <laughs> so next thing I know, I've rang these people. The dog was, the puppy was too young at that point in time. I think he was only four or five weeks of age. But they said, oh, look, if you want to come around and have a look, you can. So I went around there and obviously the mother of the puppies was a Rottweiler. She was a full-bred Rottweiler. And I believe the father was a Rottweiler cross shepherd. So that's where it came in. But I never got to see the father. But I met the mother and she was a beautiful-looking Roddy, actually. And um, there were these list of, uh, there were these litter of puppies that were on the ground there. And um, I was really inexperienced with Rottweilers back then. Um, in fact, to be honest, I was really inexperienced with dogs altogether. It's before my career took off as a trainer. Mm-hmm. I'd had a German Shepherd previous to that. It was a family dog. Another story for another time. But we had her. And uh, so I knew what a German Shepherd looked like. And I'd seen Rottweilers. I'd seen pictures of them. And I'd seen friends who had had Rottweilers. She was definitely a Rottweiler, 100%. She looked like a Rottweiler. And they had this litter of puppies. And at the time, you know, like if I could roll back time now, immediately I would have known because there were some variations in the colours there. And uh, I even said to the guy, you know, like, oh, are, are Roddy puppies different colours? And he said, oh, yeah, they can be, you know. <laughs> they can be this colour and that colour. And, but you know, it depends on what part of the world they come from. You know, if they come from England, they're this colour. And because when you're young and, you know, you've got, money burning a hole in your pocket and you're impulsive and stupid, um, people can easily pull the wool over your eyes. And uh, not to worry, I I then I selected this puppy. I saw him and I thought, yeah, he looks good. You know, he's a nice little chunky puppy. And he said, yep, right out. Well, he's only five weeks old now. You can't have him till he's, you know, about seven or eight weeks of age. So um, you'll have to come back and get him. And at the time um, I was... I was working away and something happened. I couldn't go there. Either was something wrong with my car or something like that. So I rang this guy and, you know, I said, look, I can't come around there. Is there any way you can drop him over to me? I'll pay you to do it. And he was a bit begrudging about it at the time, but he said, oh, yeah, look, I'll bring him around. Brought this little puppy around and uh, he's turned up and he's holding him like he's got his hands under his armpits and he's just, I could see him getting out of the car. I was all, all excited. I'd gone out and bought toys for him and beds and all sorts of stuff. And he just walked in and the pup was literally covered in vomit. 
He goes, oh, you mm. it all over my car. You have to pay me extra for cleaning my car. And oh, no. uh, he was a real, he was a grumpy bugger. So I, um, I relieved him of the dog. I paid him um, an extra. Oh, I think he wanted thirty bucks to get his car cleaned out. So I, I just, I begrudgingly paid him. I took the dog off him, and you know he just looked sick and seedy. And I thought, oh no, this poor little pup. Mm. So I took him inside and I washed him off, cleaned him up got him nice and dry and he just, he was flat. He had no life in him at all. And I thought, oh, my God, I've got this little pup. Something's wrong with him. He doesn't look right. And uh, I sat with him and, I, you know, I put him, we had a bean bag at the time and I put him in the bean bag and wrapped him up and, you know, got him nice and warm. And um, he finally sort of coming out of his shell. I think he was just car sick and he just didn't feel well. He was seedy at the time. But, yeah, mm-hmm. suddenly he came out of his shell and, you know, he was running around in no time and he was very excited and he was, bounding and jumping out of his skin and started drinking water and eating. So that gave me great relief at the time. Mm. Um, so that was that was my first ever introduction to Harley. <laughs> no, uh, we hadn't named him that yet then either. He's he decided we decided on Harley because both Mark and I um, loved motorcycles and mm-hmm. we thought, you know, Harley Davidson's a tough bike and this is a tough dog, so he's got to be called Harley. Uh, I was going to ask that, but thank you. <laughs> so apart from the beanbag, was he given like a, his own unique area inside the house straight away? Yeah, he was, yeah. So we set him up in the, the laundry. That was primarily the go-to for most people with dogs back then. The, the laundry was, you know, a neutral zone, had lino on the floor. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was an area where he couldn't really do much damage. There wasn't much in there. So the, the laundry was it. So he situated him to the laundry. Um, he drove everybody crazy for the first couple of nights as they do. Uh, again, not being a not being a trainer and not knowing the terms and not knowing the reasons why dogs do what they do. We were all alarmed and he was keeping us up at night and we, you know, had jobs to go to in the morning. And it wasn't just me, it was me, my girlfriend, um, my mate Mark and the other people. There was two others that were um, renting a bedroom down the back and that's was the closest to the laundry. So they weren't particularly tickled by the fact that he was down there. So some nights he ended up in my room and uh, I had an ensuite at the time in the room. So sometimes he'd end up in there. And finally he stopped with all the crying and the barking. Um, it took probably longer than what it would normally take because we kept interrupting and allowing him to learn. If I bark and squeal and carry on like a pork chop, someone will come and rescue from, mm. me th- from this situation and I'll get out of it. Mm. Oh, nice. And what sort of yard did you have then? We, had, we actually had a great yard at this facility, or not facility, this rental property that we had. It was a lovely big yard with a lot of space. Um, it had plenty of trees in it. Um, we fenced it off, so we went and bought some um, concrete Rio and uh, it wasn't completely finalised, but we, Mark and I were fairly constructive. We were both tradesmen at the time. So uh, we both made a fence and... Um, fixed it all up and made sure he couldn't dig out of it or couldn't push through it. So we, we pretty much solidified it and uh, spoke. We actually spoke to the landlord who asked if he could have the dog and he said, yep, that's fine. So we did it all the right channels and we mm-hmm. told him what we we're going to do with, you know, setting up a fencing area and he said, no, that's fine. Happy for you to do it. So we did all that and the yard itself was absolutely fantastic. There was plenty of space and it was a lot of um a lot of green grass. Um, being in Victoria at the time, I'm currently in New South Wales, but where I was in Victoria at the time, a lot of green grass, um, good shade trees, 
Victoria itself is not a very hot um, part of the state, so it wasn't particularly hot. In summer, it can get a bit warm, but in, you know, usually cool winters and long winters and long autumns and long springs and short summers. So still um, nice grounds. I used to mow it all the time, so we, we kept it in good order. Um, it wasn't full of um, anything particularly problematic that a little puppy would cause himself a mischief in. Oh, nice. So we were quite pleased by that. Mm-hmm. So he said mischief. Did he get up to any sort of mischief initially inside the house or out? Yeah, he did. He chewed the yeah, – the one thing that he did do which annoyed me was he chewed the frame of one of the doors and <laughs> um, it, that was primarily our fault because we left him uh, – we, we created like a puppy pen and we left him in an area and he was watching me doing something out in the backyard and he just had separation frustration at that point in time. So he started chewing the frame of the door and I – didn't realize what he'd done until I got in there and I could see like chips of wood all over the ground. And I looked up and I thought, Oh my God, he's just chewed this whole wooden door frame out. Uh, so I actually had to buy uh, a new door, which I just, I left it for the time being, but it was all glass paneled and everything like that. So it cost me a bit of money. Mm-hmm. And again, being a, a young guy and being on a, a very tight uh, budget with being a second year apprentice, which you practically get paid nothing. Um, well, Mark and I had to pay for the door and Mark wasn't happy with it because it was my fault. So, um, <laughs> but we, we decided that we we're going to go 50, 50 on the dog. And, and, uh, so we both shared the responsibility, but yeah, he did that. And I mean, he did normal, other normal things where, you know, he struggled with toilet training to begin with. And once again, I wasn't an accomplished or a professional trainer at that point in time. So, uh, we didn't know exactly what he was doing. And then we started getting, that polar sort of advice from people who were the old school trainers where they used to say, you know, rub his nose in it. And I didn't like the idea of that. So I never did it. Mm -hmm. I just thought that that actually sounds pretty vile to do to a little puppy. Uh, So I wasn't invested in or subscribing to that type of training methodology. So I just, I elected not to do it. Um, Instead, what I did was um, realize that I just needed to give him a lot more opportunities to go to the bathroom because he was effectively a baby at that point in time. And so I was, I was his guardian and, you know, I'm, you're the closest thing to family that the dog has got at that point in time. So you've got to give the dog a little bit of leeway. And I don't think I've ever been a really truly heavy handed person on dogs. Um, You know, I was probably heavy, a bit heavy handed when I first started learning about training, but never really that way inclined. You know, I actually adored him and I loved him and uh, I enjoyed his company and he was sort of one of the greatest things that was in my life at that point in time. So I wanted to, um, I didn't want to um, destroy the bond between him. Again, not knowing all these terms and not knowing these Mm. phrases when I was young, but I didn't want him to feel like he needed to be afraid of me or that, you know, if he made a mistake that he'd get in trouble for every single thing he did. So we... You know, we kept a vigilant eye on him and started teaching him, you can't do those type of things. You can't just go to the bathroom inside. You can't chew the wooden frame doors anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we would we accidentally started to do a lot of the right things. Um, but one person that I did go to counsel over some of the th- the frustrations that I was feeling at the time, I went and spoke to my uncle and I knew he had a working line, German Shepherd at that point in time, Um and he gave me some really good advice on him. He taught me about socialization. He went and did training with his old dog. 
And uh, I didn't even know what that was. And I said, what do you mean? What are you, what are you talking about? And he said, make sure you get him out. Make sure you take him to see things. You know, you should be going to other, get into a puppy school and or go and do some training with him. He's going to be a very big, strong, powerful dog. And he's he kind of read me the the riot act in a way about all the responsibilities that you need to do. So he was, he trained through ANKC style, which is, Australian National Kennel Council style of training. We call it the ANKC for short. And uh, he, so he had proficiencies in training and knew how to teach his dog how to do tricks. And so he offloaded some of that information. So that was really my first real responsibility in learning how to actually understand how to care for and raise a little puppy. And mm-hmm. I, you know, he gave me feeding advice and how to get him off some of the more rubbishy foods and um, and get him onto the, the good stuff. So that was uh, that was a good introduction back then. Okay. And at that time, was there any sort of intention or did you have any ideas on what you were going to do with him or was it more like oh, just going to be a companion or did you have ideas on different dog sports or activities or? Had no idea, nothing at all. There was, it, it wasn't with intent that I got the dog other than I wanted a companion. Mm-hmm. Primarily, I wanted a Rottweiler. I was uh, I'd left home as I as I mentioned earlier. I wasn't living with my mum and my sister anymore, uh, and I was on my own. I thought great opportunity to get this dog. So yeah, there was no intent, no knowledge of anything at that point in time. I wouldn't have even known what Schutzen was at that time. I had no idea. Um, however, I was doing kickboxing at the time. So both Mark and I were heavily invested in martial arts. We used to. We actually had a garage out the back prior to getting the dog that we set up as a little gym where we'd go in and um, box each other's heads off mm-hmm. pretty much uh, every night. We were obsessed with watching Bruce Lee and Chuck Norris and mm-hmm. you know, all those type of movies back in the day, Clint Eastwood and everything like that. And we just loved everything to do with boxing and martial arts. So we'd get in the shed and train till we were exhausted and then put the gloves on and beat each other up backwards and forwards. And... Um, we started uh, thinking, you know, like we'd probably like to take this a little bit more serious because we'd done some um, amateur work with some friends and colleagues and so forth at that point in time, but we kind of thought we'd, you know, love to really get into kickboxing. And that's where I met my first um, mentor, but unbeknownst to me at the time in dog training, but it was my first mentor um, from dog training who I was actually learning kickboxing from. That was where I met Boyd Hooper. Okay. So, Boyd, um, Boyd and I met when I was about 15 or 16. So he was in his mid, mid-ish 20s and I was probably about 15, 16 at the time. So um, he was uh, he was training me at the time and, and just happened to be an off-the-cuff conversation one day. We were sitting around and uh, we were about to do a round together. And uh, he said to me, oh, what have you been up to, mate? What's news? And I said, oh, not much, you know, just busy at work. And oh, I said, oh, by the way, I have... I bought myself a little puppy and uh, he said, oh yeah, what'd you get? And I said, oh, I've got a little Roddy puppy. And he said, so you're going to come down and train it with me? I said, what do you mean? Where'd you get that from? (laughs) And I had heard that Boyd was into working dogs, but my mind went to greyhounds. Immediately when I heard that, I thought, "You're you're a greyhound guy. I don't know why nobody ever said that he was a greyhound guy. It just meant that working dogs were either farm and, sh- and, and sheep dogs or that they were greyhounds. I never really thought about 
dogs as far as security protection dogs. Even though I'd seen them at nightclubs and so forth, I'd never really twigged that that was the case. And Boyd kind of looked at me and he goes, what are you talking about? And I said, don't you do greyhounds? He goes, no, no, I don't do greyhounds. He goes, no, I we, do dogs like we, yours. Yeah. We, we race, race Rottweilers. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> so that's where that that's uh, that was quite a laugh for him. He just said, "You knucklehead." He said, "I do the your dog like uh, shepherds and rotties and all sorts of working breeds." And he said, "So I'm going to see you Thursday night." And I said, "Well, I guess so." And uh, that was the that was the introduction that I had into the professional dog training world outside of ANKC. So I will say that I, I'll, I'll step back in time further to when I we had the family German Shepherd. I did go off and do training back then. I went to ANKC training um, and I think that was at Knox during, um, during that time and that would have been back in early 1980s. And uh, the people down there were just terrible mm-hmm. and it's not a reflection on who they are today or what they've come on. I'm not attacking the club. It was more of a personality clash that I had with the instructor at the time. And it was just, he was just a vile bully of a person um, that singled me out when I went down there and made me feel very uh, vulnerable in front of everyone. I was a kid and, you know, like I was making mistakes and some handling issues and he really singled me out and pointed me out to everybody on everything I was doing wrong. And, and instead of helping me, instead of guiding and mentoring like good teachers and mentors should be doing, he did the polar opposites. He made me feel like I was a, a loser and that I couldn't do anything right. Mm. So um, I left there and I said to my mum, I was so excited to go down there too when I first joined up and, you know, I'd been down there for probably five or six weeks and I came home one day and I was very upset and my mum said, what's wrong? And I told her what happened and I said, oh, I'm never going back there again. I just, I feel like the the biggest fraud. And she was upset for me because she knew how much I was looking forward to it. So we never spoke of it. We just never went back there again. I just you know, train that dog in the backyard and, uh, and until she sort of moved on. And uh, when I was uh, going back in time, when I went to Boyd's Club, when we uh, went down to Australian dog training, that was in a place called Kilsyth in Melbourne. And I went down there. It was dark. It was a cool wintry night. Um, and I, I turned up there and there was people everywhere. And there was noise and there was commotion and there was people. And I just didn't expect it to be as big as what it was. Mm. There were lights on, you know, there were fields, there were dogs training out in the fields everywhere. So there was probably about 60 or 70 dogs there. Wow. And, um, yeah, it was it was a big event and there were people everywhere. And it was just, it was like going to a rock carnival. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was amazing. I was just... Um, dumbfounded with what was actually going on. I actually didn't know what to do. I was so overwhelmed. So I was looking for Boyd and I asked a few people, I said, do you know Boyd? And they said, yeah, of course I know Boyd. He's the boss. And I said, do you know where he is? And they said, yeah, he's busy. Um, what are you, who are you? What are you doing? And I said, oh, I train with Boyd. That was kind of like, yeah, big deal. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, so they, they wasn't, they were rude. It was just, you know, it was, he was busy and I was sort of like insisting that I catch up with Boyd, but I could see him in the distance and he had probably a, a class of 40 or 50 people and it was a, it was a big deal. So one of the liaisons sort of came over and said, go to reception, sign up there. And I went over and at the time I think it was Boyd's partner and she was very, she was lovely. She was very welcoming and uh, she said, oh, you're Glenn. And she knew who I was and she said, yep, Boyd said you were coming down and uh, you've got your puppy here tonight. And I said, yep. And she said, um, 
you, do you have any questions for me? And I said, oh, look, it's very overwhelming. I'm not sure what to do. There's a lot going on here and it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a big kind of thing that I wasn't really expecting. And she laughed and she said, yeah, look, some people can be like that. There is a lot going on here. And she said, but you'll get used to what you're doing. Um, she said, so puppy class is about to be called. Uh, you've got a class that is going to be over. They, they had a tennis court there. And she said, in the tennis court, they go in there with all the puppies and your instructor will be a lady named Kylie. And uh, Kylie was my first puppy mentor. She was somebody that introduced me to um, professional dog training in the puppy realm. So I took my little pup in there and I learned so much from Kylie. Just in, even on the first night, she just was, a, there was a myriad of information and she just had a wealth of knowledge on raising puppies and, you know, socializing them and training them. And how old was Harley then? He was probably about 10 or 11 weeks when I first went down there. So I got him around about seven or eight weeks and I'd done a little bit of my own sort of stuff, but more bond development work between him and I. And again, repeating that I didn't really know what I was doing, so I was just bumbling my way through it. But fortunately, with the advice my uncle gave me and some of the books I was reading back then, um, I I appeared to be doing everything that I would still advise people to be doing these days. I just lucked into it. And, well, not lucked into it. I think luck and opportunity were both colliding with each other at that Mm -hmm. point in time. Yeah. Okay. Um, I was also going to ask, when you were doing the sparring at home with Mark, Mm-hmm. Was Harley watching and, and how did he sort of like interpret that? Uh, yeah, we did let him watch when when we actually got him and we were doing sparring. He was always an active – he was a very active part of our lives. So what I did fail to mention before is that Mark and I shared him in those early days. So some days Mark would take him and sometimes I'd take him. So Mark would take him to meet his family and I'd take him to meet my family. So he had – it was like he had – um, two sets of parents that he get to do mm-hmm. different activities with. So when we did go on the shed, he was always around us. So he never really had a life that he was absent of anybody or spent long periods by himself. Uh, so yeah, at night he was in the in the shed and he thought that was wonderful. He loved um, watching us boxing with each other. In fact, we had to erect a little area that we had to put him behind because he got too excited and he'd get <laughs> under our feet and start biting us in the legs and doing all that mm-hmm. bumpy stuff. But yes, the answer is he he was a part of it and he loved it and he thought it was great and um, it, he was quite excited and it was quite arousing for him to watch. Mm-hmm. So, for going into the the puppy classes and then advanced classes and then sort of going into sort of like any specialised areas there. Yeah, well, Australian dog training back at that point in time were predominantly a working dog club. So it was, um, well, the objective of Australian dog training was to teach dogs how to do security patrol and, and bite work. And that was, that was effectively what the club was set up to do, was to teach people how to do law enforcement style work. And uh, so once I'd seen what the other dogs were doing, the uh, capability of a, a lot of the other dogs there, I was just overwhelmed with how powerful some of these dogs were. One of the amazing things was I got to live through the era where Rottweilers truly were a a fantastic working breed. They seem to have dimmed, that light seems to have dimmed uh, a lot in the Rottweilers now. There's not much of a focus on it and there's not much of a desire for it than there was back then. But I really did get to see what some people like... (laughs) 
even even Pat, which I do the canine paradigm with, he he kind of like looks at me with this um, smirk sometimes when I talk about these wonderful working Rottweilers. Number one, because he wasn't around to see it. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, Pat would have been a kid back then. And uh, number two, because you don't see them now, it's it's hard to imagine that there was a good armada of of very strong um, and and incredible working Rottweilers. They've uh, sad, like I said, sadly they have they've disappeared. What we're seeing is a shadow of what was there as the capability. But when I did see it, I just thought to myself, my God, these dogs are so magnificent and so powerful. And the Malinois weren't on the scene back then. They didn't come till a bit later in the 90s when I first started seeing them, But the, or the mid-90s, I should say, this because this was the start of the 1990s. And uh, it really was uh, a magnificent sight to behold when you saw these dogs rushing in and, you know, like they were doing slave work a lot then. It wasn't as much suit work as you see now, but uh, slave work certainly. Um, and the... I guess the advancement between what we see in gear that we're using now compared to then, it hasn't changed so radically, but there is definitely a lot more selection, mm-hmm. a better class, a, a, a lot more thought and development that's gone into what we use for, you know, any sport or bite development work these days. But uh, nonetheless, Boyd still, he was lead, heads and tails above everybody, he had all the modern gear, he'd been travelling uh, over to Europe and the United States and brought back with him anything that he could find that, uh, you know, the professional people using that he was mentoring off at that point in time. Uh, and that was, that had created a path for me where I started to see something that resembled the path that I wanted to take. Sometimes in life, you can be very unclear until you see it. And I actually wrote an email to one of my marketing people today and I, we were talking about a font and I said, it's not the font I want. And I actually don't know what I want because I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> um, and if you could help me with that, I would greatly appreciate that by showing me some examples. And she did. She showed me a bunch of examples. And then I said, that's what I want. Now, I, now I've seen it. I know what I want. And for me, back at that point in time, I had nothing to compare to, nothing to understand or no direction to take. You know, I was very directionless as a young guy. I had no father really around at that time, no strong role model. So it was basically me teaching myself how to get through life. Mm. and um, But by going down there, I was able to see these are some examples of things that I would love to do with my dog if he has the capability of doing it. And I spoke to Boyd and I said, you know, like I just saw this dog doing that. And he goes, mate, that's a really good dog. So don't be disheartened if your dog doesn't get up to that. And Harley really didn't show as much tenacity for the work that was required back then. Like he just didn't show this great skill set. Like it was there and he was enthusiastic and he would play and, you know, he'd have a bit of fun with it, but he was never really what I started seeing some of these other dogs doing. And that was a little bit heartbreaking at that point in time. Mm -hmm. But again, you know, some of these people had been around, they were, you know, they probably had 10 years senior on me They'd been in the in the realm. They sort of were back in the days where the really strong Eastern line German shepherds were around. They were involved in understanding and how to pick those type of dogs, or um, they were they were invested in more of the working Rottweiler, Rottweiler culture that was around. So they kind of knew what they wanted. They were better uh, prepared for selection and criteria of picking those dogs out. And I wasn't. What 
would you say were his more favoured components of that of the training then? As a young dog, he had uh, very good attention and he had uh, a lot of desire to want to learn to do things. So he picked up obedience very well. And one thing that I had uh, accidentally done really well with him, um, but again, with preparedness through what my uncle had explained to me about socialization, is that he was a really robust dog socially. And there was nothing that really upset him or scared him or worried him about anything. He loved exploring and he loved sticking his nose into things and and really um, getting invested in any environment. Nothing worried him. Even the bigger working dogs when he was a tiny pup, nothing worried him. He wasn't concerned by it where I saw other dogs that were uh, a little overwhelmed by it and had to, you know, they had to create a bit more distance away from it. So they created a bit more critical distances to make sure that they weren't becoming too overwhelmed. Where Harley loved it. He loves sitting on the high, on the sidelines watching what was actually going on. And when uh, when he was doing this, you know, Boyd would say, well, you know, get your rag out when he is that aroused and and um, and let him take it out on the rag, let him bite the rag and um, and see how he goes with that. And after a period of time, suddenly what he seemed to be lacking in, uh, it just exploded out of him. I started to see this emergence of a different dog as he started to go through the cycles of development from being a puppy into a juvenile. And this uh, this power started to emanate from him. And suddenly people who never really, who would sort of disregard him as just, you know, he's just a dog. Mm-hmm. Suddenly they'd come past and say, geez, man, he's doing really well, isn't he? Like he's, you know, he's, he's really picking up. And, I didn't have anything to compare it to. So I didn't know whether he was doing great. It just felt good. Mm-hmm. And I just liked what I was doing. And, and you know, suddenly uh, other people would compliment me and then trainers would start complimenting, complimenting me. And then suddenly I started to believe it. I started to see it. I started to get an idea of what was actually going on. And it made sense to me back then. I started realizing you know, what I needed to do. I was very enthusiastic. I always hung around extra time. Always when the general public would start leaving and the trainers would hang around training their dogs because I was training with Boyd and I was kind of had an in, you know, I was always welcome to come back and um, help out as long as I didn't make a pain in the ass of myself and I helped mm-hmm. out and I, you know, I participated. And I thought to myself, well, that that's what I want to do. You know, like I, I, I want to know these people more. I want to pick their brain a little bit. I want to be useful. I want them to know that I'm not just here to sponge off them, but I'm also here. I paid for this as well. Like I I was a paying client then. Mm. I wasn't just turning up and getting my dog trained. I was, you know, paying and investing money in my training. But I also wanted, I wanted to learn more. I wanted to go beyond. I wanted to get really immersified in what was going on and what was, how, how it worked and how they did what they were doing. And, I feel that because of that, and when I see that in other people, you develop a a camaraderie with people where they start seeing you as a different type of person, a person that is more reliable and more consistent and serious about what you want to do. And uh, it, I think that leapfrogged me into being offered to come on board and start learning to be an apprentice trainer at that point in time. Mm. And they had the um, they had the first ever NDTF, the National Dog Trainers Federation course. Uh, Boyd had started it 
right back then. And I think that was like 1990, I think the pilot course kicked off. And I didn't know much about it. Boyd was developing it. He'd been overseas. He got back. He was all enthusiastic to get this training going. He kept saying, this is the future of the world, you know, like educating people, higher education, certification. And uh, I just said, oh, yeah, yeah, whatever. doesn't make any sense to me. And he said to me, mate, why don't you do the first course? And I thought, you know what? I'd like to, but I just want to concentrate on my dog. And I was watching everybody doing it and I saw everybody going in and watching the videos and I got invited to a few of them and the others I got told to bugger off because I hadn't paid for it. (laughs) So I understood, you know, that's what it is. And Harley had been progressing then. He was getting older. He was progressing and, you know, what turned out to be um, him going from puppy to juvenile, it was probably a year later and then that course had finished. So I got to watch the evolution of the first ever National Dog Trainers course mm-hmm. and all of the people that were actually uh, invested in it, I was constantly driving them nuts, asking him questions about it. So then Boyd came up to me and he goes, well, mate, you didn't do that course. And he said, and you've been doing well with the dog, so you're going to do the second course, aren't you? And I said, absolutely, I'm down for it. I got a massive case of FOMO back then. So I thought, <laughs> yep, definitely, definitely in with a penny, in with a pound at this point in time. Mm-hmm. I think I got halfway through the course and he said to me, um, there's a job here for you if you want it. And I just, that was when I saw opportunity. And there was there was a fair bit more of the evolution of what was happening with Harley at that point in time. He went on to becoming... Um, the the company demonstration dog. So he was so good at what he was doing. Harley Harley erupted, you know, like he just came from nowhere. He was kind of like, um, it's a bit of a, um, it's a, it's a bit of a Rocky story with Harley. Like, I mean, Rocky, the Sylvester Stallone thing, when he was fighting Apollo, he was just uh, a disregarded underdog that nobody really thought would amount to much, you know, and people would sort of, I, I insisted he was a Rottweiler and everybody knew that he wasn't. Um, <laughs> they knew he was a crossbreed, but, you know, I was my ego was too proud and too much that time and I just insisted that he was. But I later came to believe that, yeah, he's not, but it took me a bit of time to do. But the one thing that really happened for me and it propelled me forward um, it probably gave me about five years advance is Harley just came from nowhere and suddenly he was the dog that everybody knew his name. Um, and I mean, when I mean everybody, it was everybody at the club. Everybody at the club knew his name. Mm-hmm. He had become um, a little iconic at that point in time. And because of him, I got pushed into his limelight um, or dragged into it. More to speak. And I often joke about it. I think it's a funny thing. There was times where people knew his name but didn't know my name. (laughs) They'd say things to me like, uh, uh, they'd say, oh, you're Harley's owner. And I said, yeah, yes, I'm I'm Glenn. And uh, it was was quite amusing. But Harley had become his own identity. He'd become something that um, he was now the dog that everybody wanted to have out of their dogs. And, and and when I say that, there were some other great dogs there as well. There was a dog there called Staga um, or Staga um, who belonged to another guy called David. And there was another great Roddy there called Kane that belonged to uh, one of the trainers, Greg, who I learned a lot of in those earlier days as well. And, um, and Kane was the dog that I really aspired to be in those early days. Kane was amazing. He was 
such a, a, an impressive powerhouse of a dog. Um, like anybody that saw him could not help but being incredibly impressed by what an immaculate uh, working dog this is and the immense power that just erupted from this dog. And I wouldn't say Harley was as powerful as what Kane was, but he was a very intelligent dog. And uh, Harley used a lot of that intelligence in his working aptitude and his working um, format to generate a really um, significant response from people who are watching him. Like that, some of the feedback I always got from people was, wow, that dog is so smart. You know, like he's really pushing the boundaries on how intelligent he actually was. And it, it, he was no slouch as far as being a powerful dog. Uh, you know, like he gave everyone a really good run for their money as far as as his power, but it was just his intelligence that really blew people away on how quickly he could pick up a concept. Even if we changed anything and we re remodeled what he was learning to something else, he would switch identities very quickly. And uh, I think that's what really gave me early credibility and a great leapfrog into my career. Yeah. So during that time, what about Harley's activities outside of the club? Were you doing any other things with him and with no, his group? He was just a pet. He was just, just our pet. family dog. But mm -hmm. what I will say, what did happen in between that time as well is even though I had co-ownership of him with Mark, uh, Mark had to move out of the house for some reason. I think there was a financial issue or something like that. And along the way, he and I agreed that the dog, I was doing far more with the dog and um, I was sort of like holding up um, a significant end of his training and welfare and bills and all sorts of things. So we, I just paid Mark out. I gave him, um, I think at the time we went 50-50 on 500 bucks. I just gave him 500 bucks and said, you know, like, I'll, I'll buy the dog off you. You've invested time with him. I think it's only fair. I was making more money back then and I thought, here, here he is. I'll, I'll buy him, and he he thought that was great. He said, "Yeah, look, you know, I I wouldn't like to step in between you and the dog now. I think that, you know, you've you've come a long way in what you're doing, and it was uh it was a very appreciated, amicable agreement." Yeah, just going to use that same word. So <laughs> it's nice. I don't like seeing when there's two people and there's been relationships, and even now, and it goes to lawyers and the the stress it puts on the dogs and. Well, back then we didn't really, you know, Australia wasn't really a, a, a over litigious sort of environment like it is has become now. You know, I think at some stage we followed the trend of America, where you know they they love it's a, almost like a sport, a pastime to sue people. Mm. Back then it was more handshakes and you know, or even you'd have a bit of a scrap over it, and, and then, someone uh, would just come and steal a dog, and that, yeah, I'm taking it. That's it. <laughs> yeah, or you'd shake hands. You know, like yeah. I said, you'd, you'd give each other a bit of a tune up, and then you'd shake hands and say, "All right, well, you know, I agree. I've had some time to think about it." And <laughs> uh, but we never got to that point. We were great friends, and I, you know, you still, uh, even Mark is still very special to me this day. Mm. Uh, you know, we still communicate with each other and stay nice. in touch. And um, I really appreciated that. He he saw it, uh, the bond that I had with the dog and the love that I had for him, and uh, stepped aside and and let the relationship continue. Mm -hmm. So during that sort of time as well, did where he stayed in the house change, um, or was he sort of still uh, the laundry, or did he ever sort of like progress to most of the time in your room, or how did that sort of go? Good question. <laughs> he slept on my bed. Uh, 
even to the disgust of all of the trainers that I was working with, and even though I was uh, working for ADT at the time, or when I generated to working for ADT at the time, and I started doing the, well, I did the NDTF course, then I started becoming a grey shirt to a blue shirt into a red shirt. But uh, all that time, everyone kept saying, mate, you can't let your dog sleep on your bed. And <laughs> no one gave me any real validations. Oh, they did. They said, you know, it creates dominance and all that. The old theory that was around mm-hmm. back in the day. And uh, much to their disgust, he slept on my bed all the time. And uh, I must say he was a pain in the butt to sleep on the bed with because <laughs> he was, you know, my girlfriend and I would be in the bed and we would be pushed right to the brink of one side where uh, he would have this magnificent and glorious spread all over the bed. And if you tried to kick him off, he'd rumble and growl at you and tell you off. And, uh, you know, and even if you kicked him off the bed, he'd, just, he'd find his way back on there in the middle of the night and he'd either be between the two of us spreading us to the each um, to the limitations of the bed, hogging all the doona and everything like that. But I I think he slept on the bed with me um, predominantly all his life. Mm. And at that stage, I couldn't imagine him not being there. He was, uh, you know, we were, we were family and we were kin, you know. It was just a, it was, it worked, even though it was highly dysfunctional and uh, disruptive to a good night's sleep. Uh, he was always on the bed and I, I, I encouraged it. I welcomed him up there and, you know, we would sit in bed and the three of us would actually be in bed and sometimes he'd hop in the middle of us and we'd put the doona over him. <laughs> we'd all be, you know, we'd be watching TV in bed together and we had a we had a lovely time and um and I re- I enjoyed him and I enjoyed him being a part of that uh that friendship and that that relationship that we had. That works well in the winter too. It does, indeed. <laughs> Having a nice radiating dog body um to warm you up is lovely. Where would you say his favourite spot in the house would have been? The bed. <laughs> yeah. It was, uh, as he got older, I'm leaping ahead a bit of time now, but I remember as he got older, sometimes we'd sit in the lounge room and we'd be listening to loud music together. So we'd be listening to all sorts of genres of music and he he used to have a little bed in there as well. He had several beds. He had one outside, one in the lounge room and our bed. So we were, he was in his bed one night. The speakers were absolutely thumping. We were playing some music and we we're all having some beers. And he got up, he growled at everybody. He walked <laughs> down into the bedroom and he knew how to open and close doors. And he um, he went into the bedroom and slammed the door shut and got up on the bed. <laughs> and uh, everybody laughed. Like we belly laughed for probably about half an hour over how funny it was. And first of all, he told us off. Then he went to the bedroom, slammed the door like a child, and then hopped on the bed and went to sleep down in the bedroom. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah, it was great. Um, how'd you go with grooming? And did that change over time? Grooming wasn't really a problem for him. He was a very easy dog to look after. Uh, He didn't mind his nails being trimmed and filed. Uh, He was a short-coated dog, typical of a Roddy um, type of dog. I'll call him a Roddy for all intensive purposes, but Roddy hair gets into everything. (laughs) You could be in, you could be, if you owned a Rottweiler but you were an astronaut, there'd be sure enough you'd be in your spacesuit. You'd have to go through all sorts of disinfection and everything like that, but you would find a rotty hair. You would be, you would, you would open a sealed baggie and find a rotty hair in it. They got everywhere into everything. So grooming wasn't really a problem. They just dump a lot of hair all over the place. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was fantastic with being 
towed. He loved being towed off. He loved swimming. Um, at one stage, one of my colleagues and I opened a dog swimming, swim and gym sort of area together and he, he was in the pool all the time. He was a real water baby. Mm. Anytime there was a body of water, he was in it. Mm. Um, you know, I used to go down paddle boarding at one of the dams with a couple of the people that I trained with and, you know, as I'd been paddling out, I turned around and he was following me out. So I had to drag him onto the boat and then because he was exhausted, he'd come out in the middle of the lake. I'd drag him onto the boat and have to then paddle him back to, to shore um, and then tie him up so he couldn't paddle back out with me again. <laughs> but, yeah, he was, a, he was a funny old man. Uh, did you do much travelling with him? Yeah, we did. He went everywhere with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and back then... With the with for so for the the majority of his life up until he was about eight, I was at Australian dog training all the time, and he was there with me. And he'd come to work with me literally every day. He was wherever I was around there. So if I was at a, another tra- training center, he was the demo dog. So we would always go and demo him, and everybody had learn about what was possible by him doing the demo. So that was like a prestigious event to be the demo dog. Mm-hmm. And uh, he loved it. I loved it. And he went everywhere. If we went off to do demos anywhere, he was with us. Uh, he traveled up to me. But the very first time I ever went to New South Wales, he came up with us. Uh, so we, we could show a bunch of security guards his capability. Um, so there was some police there. There was some prison guys there and there was a private security company. So, yeah, you got to come up and do all that sort of work. We, we thought that was a pretty amazing. Yeah, nice. Um, and just other events we did, uh, you know, I think that we were the first civilian crew to ever be invited to the police, prisons and customs. Uh, they, they had a week-long training opportunity and because one of the guys was supplying German Shepherds to them at the time, they invited our whole training complement to go out there. So I got to go out to there with him out to Ballarat. And we spent a week out there, stayed out there with the, the entire group and uh, got to showcase what he was capable of doing and wonderful exposure. I got to meet a lot of people that I would never really get to meet, got to see a lot of things that I'd never get to see. And uh, like I said before, Harley exposed me to a world of opportunity. He gave me opportunity as a trainer in my development. He gave me opportunity as um, people would pay attention to me. What I was saying was was significant um, back then. And also I got to net, network and meet people that would never have, I, I would never have met my wildest dreams. Oh, it's a, a fairly sort of common thread. You know, and you think one species and another species and there's so much influence indirectly and directly. A lot of people is like, yeah, I just, I bought a dog for a companion and it changed my life. I left my job. I went in a completely different area. And now life is so much better. I'd like to think it's very symbiotic that we changed each other's lives for the better. Uh, you know, as a puppy, you never know what, what happens to them. They, sometimes a lot of these pups, they end up in people's homes and they just fall out of love with them very quickly. They love the thought of a puppy and staying a puppy and then mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. sort of they become disgusted with the dog they see because it's changed and mutated from being this little fluffy puppy that's very dependable into this large dog that's sort of robust and, you know, smashing things and being a nuisance where I felt completely the opposite. I just, I was smitten by him the entire time and I loved him. I just thought he was a magnificent animal and just a great friend to have as well. Would you say would be his favourite season? 
I think he liked spring. Spring. It was just yeah. It was in between being too cold and and um, and too hot because I think that was when I was most active um, during that point in time. I, I kind of like that in between weather myself. So I think that because of the opportunities it afforded him, he enjoyed that time of of year. But I mean, he liked winter as well. He loved winter because it gave him more indoor opportunities. And we'd always bring him in out of the cold and the rain and so forth, where if it was warmer, he'd be outside for longer periods of time. To be honest, it's a, it's a, it's probably a hard question to ask because it's been so long ago. I can't remember entirely how he felt about it. I just know that we shared a pretty active life together with, with him at the time. But I, if I had to put it down to one season, I would say it would be spring. Okay. So going back a little bit, the training and everything has been advanced and mm. then you started working with him? Yeah, that's where we – I kind of had a an idea that, you know, I've been preparing for this type of work for a long period of time. Like I'd been involved in the bike work for uh, quite a length of time. I'd been training a lot of people myself. I was uh, quite at, – at, to use the word I used before, I was quite immersed in that that livelihood where I was actually teaching a lot of people who owned security companies, who were security guards themselves, and just even people who were in terrible situations like uh, families who had been uh, under siege by people, um, wives who had been under under siege by husbands, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I, was, I was teaching people how to um, work with their dog and how to have their dog as a you know, uh, home security at that point in time. And I kind of thought, well, Harley's got all this potential. I'd really love to get involved in that type of work. And back then I had a real baby face. I was young myself. Um, I didn't have much facial hair and people look at me and think, yeah, you're tall and, you know, I know you do kickboxing with Boyd, but you kind of look like a like a teenager. <laughs> so I that was the first time I ever grew facial hair. So I kind of thought, well, people want going to take me seriously. I need to like, you know, Boyd had a mustache. <laughs> Everyone that thought it was growing facial hair. So I kind of thought, well, I have to grow a goatee and, you know, kind of look the part. And it did have the desired effect. People kind of looked at me and go, oh, yeah, you you look a bit, bit more, you're resembling a bit more of a man now. And uh, I think yeah, they- so, that with, with you were with or without Harley? <laughs> well, it, you know, for me, it was kind of ironic because I yeah. kind of thought, well, you know, I am- I'm I'm a reasonably formidable person as far as self-defense and my dog is certainly a very formidable do- dog. We tested him at all sorts of junctures in, in many different environments. And, you know, it didn't matter whether he was doing muzzle work. It didn't matter whether he was doing, you know, we were ambushing him at night. Like Boyd used to, um, we used to do this thing called walk, walk the gauntlet where we'd go into an unknown area and uh, he would just, jump out on you and attack you and Harley just nailed him, you know, like he was just absolutely amazing at it. And I kind of thought and realised at that point in time, like he really, he really relishes in this type of work. So I met uh, one of the guys that I was training his dog down there and he said, yep, look, mate, I'll give you a chance. I'll, I'll let you work for my company as long as you take it seriously and, you know, turn up to the, the shifts that I give you and so forth. And I thought, yep, I, I really want to do it. And... Um, the, the place that he actually put me on was quite a rough pub in um, Melbourne Metro. So I was working in the city area at that, that point in time. And 
I didn't know it at the time, but they actually had a reputation as being a, a, a very, very problematic nightclub. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't so much a nightclub. It was more of a pub that had a lot of, you know, they had bands on and all sorts of stuff like that. But it wasn't long before Harley got his first real bite on a, on a job site. And um, I wasn't prepared for that the first night that happened. And I had a first aid kit in, you know, close by. I had one in the car and one inside and, uh, this guy came out one night and he was quite wild and he just wouldn't listen to any reason. And um, I was actually pretty reasonable at negotiating with people and talking about situations. And most times when people would come out, they'd see me and they'd see Harley. They realised, oh, this is a he's a big dog and you know he looks pretty serious. Uh, I'm I'm gonna you know walk off and and calm down. And most people would. They were pretty good. This night, this guy wasn't having a bar of it. And uh, you know he was I. I was talking nicely to him and I was backing up and I was saying, please, sir, you know, have a think about this. You know, we've probably got people to go home to that care about us. I think it's only reasonable that you stop. And he's no way, no way. And he's swearing and cursing and uh, throwing things at me. And he just literally ran at me and Harley just hit him like a bomb and um, exploded on top of him. And this guy, um, he he didn't realise at the time he was quite, I think he was quite intoxicated. Not sure with what, but at the time he didn't realise it. But I think everything um, really dawned on him the first time Harley sunk his teeth into him. And uh, I saw his face just drop and he let out this scream like a child. Um, I can, I actually, if I close my eyes, I can still hear the the scream that came out of his mouth. And for people listening to this, they might think this is really unsavoury talking about this, but this is the real world. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're walking, when you're, um, you're guarding other people's interests and putting your life on the line, you know, there are there are lions and hyenas out, out in the, the dark of the night sometimes and somebody has to stop them. And um, unfortunately, that night happened to be me on my first night and I was very juvenile to it. And uh, yeah, Harley didn't bat an eyelid. He just literally lit him up straight away. And, um, you know, he, he screamed and he was just in complete shock. And I said to Harley out and he'd let him go. He dropped him. He was very good with letting go of people. And he was very good with engaging. And one thing that gave Harley real kudos and real high level of credibility was his incredible, uh, tenacity to engage. And he could be very hostile. I mean, I'll show you a photo of him later so you can actually see, but he had this very, very immense hostile features that he would show you and I could literally close him down immediately with one word and he would baseline straight away. And nice. people would just, they would literally die when they saw it. They just could not understand how you could do that with a dog because other dogs sort of, they would do it, but they kind of hold a grudge where Harley would baseline immediately. It was just like, you just go, eh. That yep. was a job. You know, you told me to do it. Now you told me not to. Let's let's just leave it in behind. And they couldn't get over the fact that he'd do it. They'd still say, is he okay? Is he okay? And I said, he's fine. <laughs> That's This is who he is as, as he's supposed to be when he's not working. Mm-hmm. But um, I got him to let go of this guy going back to that story. And, um, you know, this is a guy that attacked me and was with all intensive purposes trying to create as much grievous bodily harm as he possibly could on me and the dog. And then this this terrible person, I had to sit there and do first aid on him while he's sitting there bleeding into the gutter. And um, he said to me, oh, 
He said, geez, mate, that dog can really bite, can't he? (laughs) (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Oh, dear. Uh, Were there ever any sort of like uh, humorous instances that you sort of had? I'm guessing there would have been quite a few different reactions from such all all the different sort of scenarios that have been you had to go go through when you've been working. But there was always humorous um, situations. I remember uh, well, one of them I remember in particular, and it was another working night. This is just a working related humorous night, and uh, I I don't know why it happened. It just happened to be a night that. Uh, the pub that I was working in, same location, uh, it was down in in um, Port Melbourne. And it just happened to be a night where two rival street gangs got together and they were smashing, they were pulling um, sections of the fencing off the pub and they were, you know, laying into each other right outside the front, smashing cars, um, throwing things into the windows of the pubs and stuff like that. It went crazy. And I, I was uh, around the side talking. I was escorting a lady back to her car who was scared to walk down there because the the area had a notorious reputation, which I helped clean up. But uh, before that, it was quite a intimidating area to be. So I walked it into a car and I could hear all this commotion going on. So I thought, what the hell's going on? It sounded like a car had run into the front of the building. So I ran down there to see if I could offer help. And as I ran around the corner, I literally ran directly into the pathway of these 20 or so young guys all beating the hell out of each other at the, at the pub. Mm. And it was a, it was a, oh, I don't think I've ever been so scared in that sort of situation. I just didn't know whether I was going to get out of that one alive because they, they sort of saw me and I was in the wrong place at the wrong time and they swarmed me um, and they were, you know, hitting me and throwing things at me and kicking Harley. And then Harley just immediately engaged and he was just taking them down one by one. And uh, he'd grab one guy, shake him like a rag doll, drop him, get the other one, and he was dropping him like crazy. And they started realising, oh, my God, this dog is, you know, tuning us all up, and he was dropping him on the floor after he'd really given him a good working over. And by the time all this was happening, the police finally came down and, you know, they, they intervened and started making arrests, and there were bodies on the floor everywhere. <laughs> I was bleeding, Harley was bleeding, they were bleeding. You know, there was probably about half a dozen people um, on the ground that were all nursing wounds from him grabbing them and shaking them um, and putting them down. And, I, you know, people might listen to this and say, oh, he's exaggerating, he's talking rubbish. I'm, I'm, if anything, I'm playing down what actually happened. It was, it was war. It was just a night of um, absolute warfare that was going on. And um, while I was sort of, while it had calmed down, the ambulance had arrived and they started uh, taking people away and they came over and I was sitting on the gutter. I was in shock. Um, as I said, you know, like I had blood coming out of my ear and nose and um, I had bruising all over my body and I'd been kicked and had um, been hit with uh, fence pickets and so forth. Harley had um, cuts and, and, and blood coming out of him as well. And uh, I had the ambulance guy come over and he was sitting there talking to me and a, a young constable came over and he was, uh, asking me if he could take a a uh, a summary of what was going on. He wanted a what do you call it a a report. A report. Yep. Yeah. So you wanted a report of what was going on, and I said, "Oh, mate, look, if you don't mind, I'm just I just need a minute to collect my thoughts. I'm not, uh, you know, I've just been through a really horrendous ordeal." And he's sitting on the go, and he said, "Oh, you're right, mate." And he was actually a nice guy. He said, "You're all right," and he was patting Harley at the time, you know, like he was 
sitting there patting him on the head. He goes, oh, good boy, good boy. He goes, what happened here? What happened here? And I said, oh, I'll, you know, like I walked in and he said, you know, like where all these guys come from? Like did they do this to each other? And I said, oh, no, that was my dog. <laughs> he shot his hand off him like he was electric and he just, you know, he jumped up and sort of like moved four metres back. And he said, what? He goes, this dog? And I said, yeah, this dog. And he goes, and he, he goes, I've been patting him. And I said, yeah, he's fine now. Like it's all over. And he goes, oh. I wish you told me earlier, and he 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 went white like the guy went white. And um, for me, I was looking at him. I'm thinking to myself, how strange! Like, what's the, what's your problem? But he just like they just carried away, you know, like all these people who were laying on the ground who had, you know, had bits of flesh chewed out of them um, by by this dog that was, you know, while all this was taking part half an hour earlier. So I thought that was funny when I looked back on it. I was kind of I, I realized then how intimidating and scary that was. And I, I didn't realise at the time what was actually going on to the full extent. Mm. How was his general health? Yeah, it, it was great. His his general health was really good. Uh, right up until he lived to about 12 years of age. His health at that point in time was always good. I was, before I knew it, I was really into what Narelle is really heavily invested in these days. I mean, her whole life is pet nutrition at this juncture. You've spoken to Narelle now. She's since gone on to become, you know, a bit of a superstar in pet nutrition world. Mm. But back then I was reading uh, a book called Give Your Dog a Bone by Dr. Ian Billinghurst. Mm -hmm. And I realised back then that um, from what Ian was saying that we have really done our dogs an injustice. And and thank God for Ian and thank God for that book. Um, and yep. uh, I, you know, I got to eat meet eat. I got to meet Ian Billinghurst a long time ago and pick his brain a little bit about it. And and he really said, "We just don't understand how bad our nutrition is for for dogs." And that was back in the nineties, mm. you know. And I'd say it's so much worse now with the marketing and the you know the the great big conglomerate of all, all the foods that are coming out that we're really just blindly pushing into our dogs. But thank God for Ian. And I, and back then I was feeding Harley and even the dogs that I was looking after, I was doing uh, board and train for Boyd as well during the day. So all the dogs then were eating, you know, nice, healthy um, lamb's necks. So we were feeding some dry, but we we're also feeding um, the butcher down the road from us. He'd always keep us a great big box of lamb necks and good off cuts of meat and so forth. Um, lamb flaps, lamb necks, all those sort of things, beef, um, offal, you know, we're feeding them offal as well. Yep. And uh, Harley was eating all that as well. So I'd get a portion of that and I'd take it home for Harley or he'd just come to work for me and just eat during the day. Yeah, great. And the dogs were thriving. Like mm. they were just – Harley was rippling with muscle. You know, he was a big dog. He was swimming all the time. Um, he was active all the time. He was exercising all the time. Or, you know, his whole day – was quite a physical and strenuous day. He, he was running, chasing balls. He was doing bite work, you know, like training every day because he was our demo dog. He was always, we were do, always doing a bit of brush up work with him. Anytime I could get a person to come down and put a sleeve on, we were doing work. We're just doing something all the time. And for me, you know, I've explained it to other people in other occasions. It was the best days of my life so far 
in all of my dog training career. Like I don't, I just don't think I could ever relive what I was living then. I was living a life, a very privileged um, opportunity, which nobody really knew much about. Dog training wasn't as, as glamorous as what it is now. But for me, it was just magnificent. It was the life that I was born to, to do. Um, and the people that I was around at that point in time, Boyd and the ADT crew, they were the people that I was meant to meet and the people that, you know, needed me and Harley at that point in time. We were, we were meant, I think, you know, I'd, I don't know if fate is is real, but um, I'm, I'm certainly convinced that whatever happened aligned for all the right reasons. Everything just felt great. It, like I said, it wasn't a time where um, – there were just no regrets about it. Everything about it was just marvellous. Yep. Some things are just meant to be, you know. Just meant you, to be. You can't see that when you've got a car sick puppy in front of you. But exactly down right. the track, exactly things right. just happen. They do. Did he have a, a favourite toy? Or Yes, he did. He had a Kong ball. Kong. And that was before Kong balls were really even <laughs> what they are today. You only had the option of one big fat, large Kong ball and it was the big black Kong balls back in the time. And I saw it in a shop and I said to the guy, what's this? And he goes, I don't even know. And, and it's just, uh, he goes, it's a Kong ball. He goes, it looks like a silly beehive or something like that. And he didn't do a great job of selling it to me, but I just thought, I said, well, what's different about it? He goes, well, let's take it out of the packet and have a look. And we look at it and he goes, oh, it says here that you can stuff food inside it and, you know, and bounces in different directions. And uh, I said, oh, yeah, I'll buy that. And why not? And uh, he was going down to one of the local pools at that point in time, and I, it was semi-waterproof uh, or semi-buoyant, um, so I could throw it into the pool. And Harley lit up when he saw it. He just loved it. And he took that ball everywhere. Everywhere he went when we were going to training, he had it in his mouth, and he'd take it into the car. Um, and it was his, It was kind of like his pacifier, the mm -hmm. thing that, that – um, anytime he was feeling a little overwhelmed about anything, not that he was feeling overwhelmed about anything, but just in, in in stages where he was frustrated or aroused and he couldn't vent it, his Kong ball saved him. It just gave him that relief that he would play with. Yeah. Um, and that's a good question, Robert. I never really gave that much thought, but he really loved that bloody Kong ball. Just to relax himself. It did. It'd end up in the bed. Um, you'd you'd hop in the bed at night, and the, you'd you know you'd have this sloppy old Kong ball um, <laughs> that slip out underneath you, and so he'd he'd stash it in places all the time. It was quite a funny thing. And um, I remember once he he lost it, and I didn't realise how much it meant to him. He was actually pining for it. He was you know like he'd sit at the back door and he'd look out into the yard, and he kept going to all the places he thought it was. And I realised, oh, it's the Kong. So I, I had to go and buy him another one. I had to find a shop that that had it because nobody really carried him back then and I had to find a shop that had it and buy him another Kong ball and he was just delighted when he saw his Kong ball. <laughs> um, funnily enough, I found the old one after a period of time. It was, it was at the training centre um, way down the back. I was mowing the lawns one day and the lawnmower actually hit it and um, nearly broke the blade and I thought, what the hell was that? And I found it was Harley's bloody Kong ball. So... End up having his reserve one. Did he have any sort of um, weird or peculiar habits? Not that I can remember. I don't think he he ever had any. No, not nothing like I've seen in other dogs. He was he was 
in many ways, he was the perfect dog. That's a nice dog. Nice. Yeah. Um, a question I ask everyone is to complete the sentence, I can't believe my dog ate. A nappy. A nappy. <laughs> yeah, he ate a nappy and that was the most disgusting thing that I'd ever seen in my life. He, he, <laughs> uh, we had friends that came round to our place and they had a child and they changed the child and threw the nappy in the bin. And um, it was at the back and he got into the bin and I saw him um, shredding up the nappy and eating it. And then, oh, yuck, that was just foul. Did he ever get to share the house with another dog or any other species? Any he other shared pets? the house with cats. He shared the house with uh, other dogs. We added dogs. He was the first and then we brought another dog called Gammon. Um, which I bought off a lady called Joy Bells from Rottweil Rottweilers, a very well-known and very well-loved and respected iconic person in the industry. Um, so we had her. I had another um, female called Storm. She was another uh, Rottweiler I got off one of the club members. And then we added another male called Dutch. And uh, I've got a photo on my wall with all four of them sitting together and they lived harmoniously with each other for most of their lives together. Nice. And, um, he was, Harley wasn't dog aggressive at all. Uh, he was, in fact, you know, he'd been bitten by other dogs that had got off their leads and he'd always look at me as if to say, what should I do? He just, he'd never actively show aggression to another dog. He just didn't believe in it. He was very, very social. Um, he could play with puppies. He could play with ducks. He could play with kittens. He could play with children. Um, it didn't matter what you introduced him to. He had no... Uh, no aggression in his body whatsoever. And that's why I think when people saw how jovial he was and how friendly he was and how fun-loving he was and how accepting he was of male and female dogs of all calibre, whether they're friendly to him or not, and they could see him switch from that Jekyll and Hyde uh, uh, behaviour, they just couldn't understand how he could be so capable of such a high level of violence and yet be such a loving, passive, friendly dog. I mean, we'd have nights where, you know, when I was young and we'd have nights where I'd have friends around and we'd be drunk in the lounge room together, Harley would be on the, on the couch rolling around on the floor with everybody. Um, and they would take some incredible liberties with him and he never cared. And mm -hmm. I never felt that there was a reason to be unsafe around him. I wouldn't put anyone in those sort of situations. It's not my calibre or the ethics that I subscribe to. I wouldn't put anybody in a situation they're uncomfortable with and especially my dog. There were times where people had come around that I just didn't believe in their capability as a person to be responsible around a dog, so I wouldn't expose him to them. But for anybody else, Harley could be around everybody. And, yes, the, the question that you originally answered was he shared his home with all sorts of – we even used to board dogs at home and – you know, there'd be rogue dogs coming in from time to time that he would just go, oh, it's another dog. Would oh, you look nice. at that? Yep. Put you on the spot. One of the most happiest times that the two of you spent together. Pretty much every day. Every day. Love yeah. it. Love the answer. Yeah. I don't think there was a, a one specific day that I thought I loved him more than the other. I just loved him all the time. Uh, he was just incredible and I just found, you know, I think sometimes we think our soulmate is got to be another human being and I don't think that's the case. I think that it can be 
your dog and I, he was definitely my soulmate. We were, we were old souls together and Harley was an old soul. Um, in fact, sometimes I, I see a resonance in, in, in him and that I do in some of the other dogs that I've had. And sometimes I wonder if he's, if he's around me still and he's still uh, influencing what's happening. And I know that might be very ethereal and some very heavy duty wishful thinking, but there is, there are just some things that I just see that remind me distinctly of him. So yeah, there was no one day mate that I, I loved him from the moment I saw him until the day he died. And, you know, it was a, it was a beautiful love story. Oh, that certainly sounds. It. <clears throat> Do you think he had a, a favorite place that you visited or went to the regular or not regular? Yeah. The, the training center. He loved training it. Center. It was full of so many opportunities and good memories for him that there was no reason not to love it. He always got excited when we were going down the road. He would, uh, he would start pacing around and chanting and <laughs> singing the song of his people in the back of the car. When he, <laughs> he started seeing some of the landmarks and the, the cues along the way that were telling him we're, we're not far now. And, mm-hmm. uh, we always, I used to always say to him when we went back, I said, we're not far, mate, we're nearly there because it was like a little kid, we there yet? Yeah. It uh, was very, very much like that. So, yeah, the training centre was definitely his favourite place. But also the swimming pool. He loved the swimming pool. Um, he was very uh, enthusiastic about swimming. Oh, let's love it. So something a little bit different, especially for the, bit different. For, for the Roddies yeah. as well. Yeah. Oh, no, Roddies are very good water dogs. They're very, they're very, um, even my current Roddy Mando, he's very enthusiastic about water. Oh, nice. Yeah. So anything else coming to mind that you'd like to share about Harley? Yes. Well, I've got another uh, story that I can tell you is that he used to do some animal acting as well. So at a location where I was talking earlier, my one of my earlier colleagues and I started a uh, a dog training and swimming centre where Harley used to swim in the the pool quite a lot. Uh, the guy that was the custodian, Bob, he was very involved because he was doing animals all the time. Uh, Channel 10 would often ring him up and saying, oh, I need an animal to do this. And one day he came in and I was uh, I was cleaning, I think, and he came in and said, hey, mate, um, he goes, that um, beautiful dog of yours, I've got a position for him on, uh, on a TV show if you're interested in. And I said... Oh, yeah, that sounds fun. And he said, um, so the, the show is called Totally Full Frontal. It's a comedy show. And he said, uh, if you go down there and speak to them, they need the dog to do this, this, and this. Can he do that? And I said, yep, he's, he can do all those sort of things. So I went down there and uh, I met the the producer of the show and then he sort of got me in to sit in the green room for a while. And then the actors of the show, who I all knew, I'd seen them on the TV show before, they mm-hmm. came in. We were all having a chat and they were they wanted to know all about Harley and then they said, okay, well, this is what the, the gig is. We need to, we're going to do a comedy skit and we need to sit in a room together and have the dog sitting on a chair between us and we're going to, um, one of us is going to do a fart and we're going to blame it on the dog. And uh, they said, you know, like we have to try and get him to look guilty. And I said, oh yeah, he'll he'll do all that. And he, he was pretty, pretty fun with all that sort of stuff. So I, I was sort of luring his head up and down in the background and then, you know, one of the guys leans over rips, and they rip off this big fart in the background and uh, they look at each other and they go, it wasn't me. And then they look at the dog and go, oh, Harley, you dirty <laughs> dog. And then he looked down at the ground. So 
Um, that was the first ever TV skit he got to do. Oh, nice. Uh, so uh, they said to me, um, oh, in two weeks we need a dog again. Can we get Harley back? And I said, yeah, of course. And from there it was just one after the other and he was, I think he did probably about a dozen skits on their show. And uh, from there it just uh, one thing led to another one and he got uh, jobs to do ads on newspapers and um, commercials and all sorts of things. And it was just, that was a fun side to it. And they were never aware that he was a, a working security dog. To them, he was just, the, the, I think they used to call him Harley the Wonder Dog. The so Wonder dog. Yeah, yeah. They'd, all, they'd, they'd have this little chant for him when I used to get to Channel 10. I'd pull up in the car park and if they'd see me, they'd all start singing Harley the Wonder Dog. And um, that was that was funny. It was quite quite sweet that they, um, they, they got to see a different side of him and he had a different persona and a different life where he wasn't, you know, Harley the working dog. He was uh, a dog that got to do enjoy some uh, TV time. And I love that. I thought that was so, such a good variation from his normal life. So yeah, absolutely. He, he, yeah, he lived a very full life and so did I. You know, we got a lot of variation in what we got to do and a lot of – that's why I say I, we had a life of abundance in many of the experiences we got to do. We got to meet a lot of people and see a lot of things. And because he was such a – he had such a beautiful baseline as a dog and he was so capable and he'd throw in and immerse himself. And, but so would I, I would, I would embrace any new opportunity. I would try anything that anybody suggested and some things I would um, fail miserably at and other things I would excel at. And uh, it was all fun. It was all learning experience. And I really, I really appreciate the opportunity that was afforded to me. Uh, certainly an, an amazing personality and yeah, fun and variety is the spice of life. And it certainly sounds as though the, the two of you lived it to the max. We tried. <laughs> um, do you want to give some people links to yourself or have a quick, really quick bio and let people know where they can find more information about the stuff that you're doing now in case they're under a rock and they don't know who you are? <laughs> Sure. Well, there'd be probably listeners of your show who have got no idea who I am. Uh, so my name is Glenn Cork. I'm a professional dog trainer, but I also uh, work with Pet Resorts Australia. Uh, we do predominantly pet boarding uh, all across, pretty much uh, across the eastern seaboard at this point in time. And uh, we're uh, gradually expanding our business portfolio. So they'll expect to see more Pet Resorts Australia opportunities in a location near you one day. Um, I'm also the Chief Training Officer of Canine Evolution. So we offer professional dog training services. Once again, we're everywhere up from Townsville all the way down here in Dural in New South Wales. Uh, great team of people working with me, alongside me, and I'm really proud to showcase that opportunity for people who are looking for any type of uh, pet boarding, pet training, private lessons, home tuition. Uh, I run the practical side of the National Dog Trainers Federation here at Pet Resorts in Dural. We've I've been doing that for a long time. I'm uh, I've got a cert for in training and assessing, so I'm actually a accredited training person. I've I've actually got I'm certified to train people. I've been doing that for a long time. I do seminars. I've been on board of directors for um, multiples of different animal agencies, including the International Association of Canine Professionals, the Pet Industry Association of Australia. Uh, I'm probably forgetting something. I've been the <laughs> training director for the Rottweiler Club of Victoria for five years, 
formally. I've done all that formally. You've got that little uh, podcast to... The Canine Paradigm. <laughs> yes, and um, I'm very fortunate and uh, very lucky to be married to a, a beautiful lady named Narelle Cook who uh, has got a company called Canine Suticals who has a significant uh, nutritional um, supplement for canines, specifically for canines. And um, so, yeah, there's a lot there. So if you're looking for me, you can find me through um, Canine Evolution. It's C-A-N-I-N-E evolution.com.au. Uh, you can go to the website and uh, I've got a small bio on there. Uh, you can find me through Pet Resorts Australia uh, or you can find me through the Canine Paradigm if you haven't heard that podcast before. Uh, Robert's a fan of the show. He's been listening of that since the, the dark old days. Where yep, highly recommended. Thank you, mate. I appreciate that. And uh, yeah, there's uh, there's a lot more I've done in in between and all around. I've, I'm involved in dog sports. I judge. I've been involved in detection. Uh, lots of things. Lots of things. I, I'm totally immersed in the wonderful world of canines and all of the remarkable people. In that field as well, I've had a, a very full and very fortunate life of meeting some great individuals and sharing their stories and watching their development and seeing people start their own journeys off from, you know, switching from a corporate role into the world of professional training. And I've, I've been very privileged to have been a part of that journey as well. And uh, I'll keep doing it as long as they let me. <laughs> Glenn, it's been an honour and a pleasure to have you on my little show. I have thoroughly enjoyed the conversation and hearing all about Harley. Awesome Likewise, talk. Robert. Thank you, mate. I appreciate anybody giving me the opportunity to talk about him. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for listening. I hope that you enjoyed the show. Special thank you to our new listeners in Mars Hill in the US and Frankfurt am Main in Germany. Don't forget to tell a friend how awesome these stories are and that they should listen to them all. And if you really want to, give us a like, a share, or a review. Um, check out the Facebook group, leave a comment. Anyway, until next time, stay safe and remember, your dog is family. <laughs>